Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, The Golden Age of Core Comedy and Memories of the Old Opera House. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. The 50s and 60s was a wonderful time for entertainment in Cork City and it's relived here in this podcast with the people who were so passionate and dedicated to their profession and sadly now many of them have passed away. But their memories and stories live on. And for the next 40 minutes or so, you will hear the voices of Noel Barrett, who loved performing in the old opera house. You would get comments from the gods, as it was called. And if you pleased the gods up, up there on the top of the house, you were a sellout. Maeve Delaney's love for the performing arts all started when she was a child in the old opera house. We were up so high, but as a child you didn't care. You'd be looking way, way down onto the stage. Bill O'Connell, who spent many years doing pantos and was in the old opera house uh, rehearsing for Sleeping Beauty, the night it burnt down. I was in it the night it went in fire. Did you really? I did, yeah. And I never played it. And I was in the uppers the 12th of December, 1955. Dick Healy, nephew of James N. Healy, and his wife Angela, who was a dressmaker and costume designer. And we just cried our way through, uh, seeing the, 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 the roof fall in. It was dreadful. Yeah. Paddy Comerford, who was famous for his comic sketches. Sleeping Beauty was another one that was a show about, you know, because it burned, it was the... That was the pantomime pick for that year, burning the Opera House down. And Charlie Hennessy, who did so much for Cork Tater, both on and off the stage. Believe it or not, no, you're talking to the first chat. Dan Donovan, teacher, actor and director, talking about Jim Stack. Jim Stack in the old days, and I forgot to mention Jim Stack, because Jim was uh, one of the central pickers in Cork, who was uh, doing plays in the Opera House. And Greta Owens, who was in James Stack's acting company. And of course, that was like to die for. Death. Oh, <laughs> that you would get praise from him. Vass Anderson, who started with James Stack, went on to work with the BBC. So in that time, we're now talking mid-50s, a whole lot of us were semi-pros. Donald Donovan talking about the Cork Slag shows. And what Colm Feely, the author, was mainly hitting at here was the numerous people who 
allegedly took part in the battle for the establishment of the Republic. Michael Toomey. And they were an incredible success because Colm Feely was a brilliant writer of satire. And Siobhan O'Brien. They were always there, particularly, funnily enough, in a kind of a comic way, because I suppose it was a way that <laughs> I just did, you know. And finally, Frank Duggan. There's something about the Cork accent that is, um, for us, I suppose, it was a bonus, in as much as the Cork accent is the butt of humour all over the country. They're all the voices that you'll hear in this podcast telling the story of the golden age of Cork comedy. But we're going to start with memories of the old opera house with playwright and former writer with the old Cork Examiner, now the Irish Examiner newspaper, Declan Hassett. I love the whole the idea of performance in all its forms, in its broadest sense. Uh, and uh, I'm a great admirer of those who are willing to put on the powder and the paint and get up on stage and sometimes make a fool of themselves just to, to, to bring a bit of laughter and a bit of life and light to, to people's lives. The famous uh, review comic review shows like The Swans and Up Cork and those pantomimes which would have been in the Opera House and uh, uh, Everyman Palace and at about nine other venues and uh, on any one Christmas, on any one Stephen's Day because then the natural traditional opening of a pantomime was on Stephen's Day, unlike now. Therefore, uh, it was something special for me to come on the double-decker bus with my parents and my younger brother, uh, sitting out in the front, going to the city, which we, well, we used to call it going to town, and uh, arriving uh, at the old opera house then, and uh, getting our tickets, which would, would have been booked, I presume, and going to the first production, first uh, sh- showing of uh, the panto in, in the opera house. Uh, out of the love of, of theatre and of the cinema, indeed, uh, these were the consolations we used to go to the Opera House every matinee, especially from 1935 or 36 on, when Carol Clope and Philip York, uh, <coughs> two entrepreneurs, I suppose, they had developed uh, a strong repertory, thing, re- repertory system, uh, which they ran right through the summer season. And we hardly ever missed one of those plays. My office overlooked the River Lee and the Cork Opera House. And it used to bring back memories of going to the Opera House Longo, the old Opera House that was, and there's what we'd called the gods for the gallery, the steps going up outside the Opera House, and you'd queue, Mum would take us after Christmas, maybe Saint, not St. Stephen's night, that was too busy, other nights, you'd queue, and the steps went up, levelled, down, up, levelled, down, up, levelled and into the theatre and as a child you'd feel these steps went on and on and on forever in fact there were probably only one two three four tiers of steps and that was for the gods the cheap gallery seats we were up so high but as a child you didn't care you'd be looking way way down onto the stage and we had characters outside ruby green and her father singing outside the Cork Opera House. Her father was blind 
and Ruby would take him around. And I'll always remember he had a piece of wire and a sock attached to the wire to put the money in the donations. The people that had a stall selling sweets, tenora, that was a great cock drink that time, tenora, did you ever hear of tenora? No. It was made by John Daly's. Tenora was a great, if you got tenora for Christmas, you were a millionaire. Uh, what, what, what kind of a drink? Mineral, like, uh, like, uh, like raspberry, which was a sparkling tenora. It was cock. But yeah. upstairs there was a stall there. Mm. And they were from the north side, the O'Donovan's. <coughs> Excuse me, and they had a stall upstairs in the gods, and I used to pass it on with Donny Donovan, who played soccer with Everton after, and I got many a trip into the uppers with Donny to sit down upstairs and watch many many shows with me as a, a young fella, and that's all seventeen or eighteen years of age now. And then when I started courting, like all cock couples, like you had Jack Cruz, Jimmy O'Dea, Maureen Potter. You had the Cock Operatic Society. You had Collins Musical Society. Mm-hmm. There were regulars from Nell and myself, and you'd go with your box of double centers, whatever it was, sat down, and twas, you go to the opera house once a week. And I, it was a part of, part of my bringing up, like, yeah. and then, and all those shows went on. And then come the summertime, when the shows w- w- wouldn't be on at all, there was a crowd called uh, Carl Clope. Javier Carl Clope, they were an English company who came into the opera house for the summer months and played, but they had some brilliant shows. The Winslow Boy, no, um, they were brilliant, brilliant shows, uh, Carl Clope. And he was a British, they were a British company who came in for the slack weeks, uh, the slack months rather, in the opera house. The flagship would be the opera house. And the opera house panto at the time in the lead role of the dame would have been Ignatius Comfort. And he was he was a fine actor because he, he played a lot of drama as well. But he was small and petite and passed off as a real small cock woman. And, like, he he could talk out to the audience. He, he put his foot up in the footlights and he could talk out to them. He was excellent, really. The old opera house, you, you would get comments from the gods, as it was called. And if you please the gods up up there on the top of the house, you were a sellout. Yeah. And the, the generally the people who came from afar to do uh, plays, etc. If you pass Cork, you would pass anywhere in Ireland. Was the the team that they went for? <laughs> I can remember a time when there were seven pantomimes on in Cork every Christmas. This was, of course, long um, before television, and they all did good business. And it was also the time of the Sunday night concerts, mm-hmm. especially in the Opera House, the Father Matthew Hall, the old AOH Hall, which was no longer there. And they were all over the city, concerts every Sunday night. I must tell you a good story about a concert in the Opera House. Because of the quirk in the licensing laws, there were only two places where you could get a drink on Sunday night unless you were what they call a traveller, unless you were from out of town. One was a boat club down down the river and the other here was the opera house so no matter what fare you put on the opera house on a Sunday night you were always guaranteed a full house because of the licensing laws the bars were open so I know one night um, the house was full as usual and the crowd in the gallery of course had frequented the bar and they were getting a little bit noisy and there was a soprano on the stage singing that old 
Victorian ballad um, Diolier and she came to the line it was and she wasn't by all accounts a very good soprano it was my mother taught me how to sing there was a voice from the gallery she's a lot to answer for <laughs> and so when you went to the opera house it was a huge boost you had a terrible confidence to say you felt you were after making it does that make sense to you oh it does you, you, you came way or came you graduated into the opera house yeah, and was it, that it, it? Yeah, it, it didn't mean anything people think to me that you were on the opera house I loved every minute of it, I can tell you now. Yeah. And I loved the people. I hope I don't sound big-headed to you, my lovely men. But if I walk down the street and I see a woman smiling, coming towards me, I know she recognises my old big slitter head. Does that make sense to you? And I will make it my business to stop her. Stop her. Yeah. And say, how are you, ma'am? I'm going by. Yeah. That is cock, my lovely men. In 1955, the old opera house burned down. And to remember that night, we start with Harl Johnson. I met her at the boat at the Innes Fallon down on the Penrose Quay. And I said, uh, bad news. And she said, what, is somebody dead? Well, she, I said, it's far worse. The opera house was burnt down. So I took her down to see the ruins, ruins and the smoke was still coming out of the ruins. And I was getting very maudlin and almost crying, and she said, come on, we've got to do something about it. So we started raising some money within a week. And that started a lifetime involvement for me with the Opera House. Your wife turned to you and said, come on, let's start. Yes, she said, come on, we've got to do. So we started, uh, with others, we we, uh, made a little office. Actually, the remains of the office were there, we added to it. I made an office for um, for the building committee, and we sold bricks at a pound each from the older ruins, and we started committees in all the towns around. I remember the night the opera house burned. Oh, yeah. We were Harry Bolton and Ray Kiley, and Dick and myself, and Angela and Moore. We hotel. We were rehearsing at Rent's Hotel. And exactly. the waitress came in and said, I don't know, are you, worried, are you interested with the opera house and flames? We were, uh, we were rehearsing uh, Princess Ida. Princess Ida. Uh, we, we just left the rehearsal and flew over to Camden Quay. Hmm. Uh, was there a big crowd there? Looking oh, at it, was a huge crowd. it was a dreadful huge night crowd. of wind and rain. Uh, Driving rain. Driving rain. Yeah. yeah, and we just cried our way through, uh, seeing the, yeah. the, the the roof fall in. It was dreadful. Yeah. I was in it the night it went in fire. Did you? Really? I did, yeah. And I never played it. And I was in the opera house the 12th of December, 1955. Right? And I was in it, I'm repeating myself now, and I'm proud of it all that I was in it. And I said that there are not many people alive now that were in the opera house. And we were rehearsing the Steeping Beauty. Describe to me, what, what was it like that night in there? Well, no, we just went in for rehearsal, right? And I can tell you now, and it is from the horse's mouth. I remember we were upstairs over the bar, and Jim Stack, Jim was the producer, Law, but he was a tremendous character. And a very nice, genuine man, but spoke frightfully, frightfully. Be like my good man. Move left, you know. But uh, I remember I was sitting on a hamper, a kind of a hamper up backstage, you now behind the bar, the old old bar. And we caught kind of smoke around us, and we heard noise, didn't we? 
and we thought with the children rehearsing on stage, the tiny tots, and it says, you're speaking to me, you know, Twas the roof on fire, wasn't it? My goodness, yeah. Like, on my board of honour, right? And I remember Bill Toomey, God rest Bill now, phoning the fire brigade that he didn't want any clangor of bells when he'd have a beer investigated. And I remember Jim Six, let's, let's get out and let the firemen came, let the firemen investigate. And of and course it took took off very quickly. Yeah. Were you lucky to get out? Yeah, not really. I could be big martyrs here and all for it. I quite actually walked out. And I went to, I stood where Christy Ring bridges now. It was no bridge at that time. And I remember it was Sean Reardon who was playing the part of the witch. And he said to me to learn he'd be a shell in the morning. And how right he was. And it was only a shell. And I remember there was a pile of people around. It was lashing rain. The wind was howling. And I remember there, there was a woman kind of standing next to us. Wrote a stone road job. And she says, I hope they save the school of art. And there was a typical cockfellow a few feet away from her. And I can't repeat on what he said about the school of art. It, it was, somebody described it as, described as the knife through Cork's cultural heart. Uh, it was a very loved building, uh, very much an ornate uh, building with, with the, the splendid boxes and curtaining and uh, very plush uh, and uh, much loved. Uh, and uh, people shed tears on the quayside here watching the building. Uh, they had been rehearsing a panto when they noticed smoke coming from an area uh, not far from here and uh, by the morning uh, the building was gone uh, and it took the, the people's pounds, shillings and pence to, to bring it back ten years later. And it was the steeping beauty, wasn't it? Was the, what part had you? I, the, I was playing the part of a comedian. Not the dame, no, I don't want to bluff you, but I was a comedian with Paddy Cotter. And this show, show, why should I say, I, I'm not telling any lies. That show, to keep the cast together, was brought into the OH. And two or three nights after, the OH went in fire. Oh, yeah, that, that was And there's like very a few people, moment, that's it? right. And Sleeping Beauty wasn't played for years and years and years after. One thing you would avoid is uh, an Eastern pantomime. Uh, there was a bad look attached to an eastern setting, you know. Uh, Ali Baba, no, in the 40s. That was, uh, the Sleeping Beauty was another one that was a Peshoga boat, you know. A Peshoga in what way, now? Uh, because it burned... It was the... That was the pantomime picked for that year. It burned the Opera House down. The funny year it was transferred, that pantomime, over to the OH, which was burned down. It burned down three theatres in Cork. The, that and there was always a pishoga, but there, no way will we do that again. Were you always a funny man? I, I was, even at school. I didn't realise it, but I, I enjoyed fun. I enjoyed laughter. And uh, I had never had ambition to be trained. I was never trained as a dancer, or a locution, or acting. And one thing I always maintained, that you cannot analyse comedy. Michael Toomey, which you interviewed, always has, he has a good lecture called A Sense of Humour. Everybody has a different sense of humour. 
Now, in my last show, I had I had prepared, I had 23 stories. And the most amazing thing about all of them is that I had the memory to remember them without a cue or without a prompt. And that was an achievement in itself, Morris. You're taking off everyday life. What happens? What happens? I ob- yeah. You observe. And, I do. And, and, and you're actually watching people, are you? And, and Oh, I went, not intentionally, but I, I can... Re- Funny, you might find this funny now, but I find in serious situations like funerals, I can, you know, I started an awful lot of fun with the reactions of the people and the sayings, you know, and listening to... Uh, give me an example. Well, fellas know, we'll give you in the pub, we'll say, you know, um, and pub on the north side, let's say. And there's always... They have concerns, like for instance, no one fellow said, and poor Mikey passed away. He did, so God help us. And what happened? They don't know about who one fellow said, whatever it was, it was hereditary, you know. Oh, another fellow said, my God, I heard that's a very hard thing to cure, you know. And another fellow said, come here, just on the side. What is hereditary? Another usual fellow above in the bar, the bar stool, the point in his hand, and the fag in the other hand, he said, Hey, listen up. I tell you what hereditary means. It means if my mother and father can't have children, I can't either. And we are speaking about cock humour and we are speaking about beamishes. Well, before I joined Beamish's, I worked in Thompson's confectioners here in Cork and I drove a van around the city and I was delivered to the coal gate six days a week. I never had to buy a Christmas tree. I never had to buy an Easter egg. I used to meet with the traders down there every day and I can tell you they used to go to the Thompson's van for their elevenses and I tell you Thompson's didn't make too much money out of the traders in the coal gate. But why I'm saying this, they were lovely beautiful people and there was two women there Christine and Bridgie and two days before Christmas they were selling away their Christmas trees and this is a true story you know a fella came out of the oyster didn't he looking for a Christmas tree and uh, the day before Christmas Eve and there was Christine and Bridgie they they're brushing up and all they were selling were, was bunches of holly so this fella came up and he said lady you'll have to look after me I'll be murdered when I go home he says if you won't give me a Christmas tree and uh, Bridgie was up for the she Bridgie what's up with him and she he's looking for a Christmas tree and Bridgie says little buy a Christmas tree little buy she she tis Easter eggs we're selling no believe it or not no you're talking to the first chat Yourself, yeah. <laughs> we used How's to do. Charlie, no. We used to do an old slag show in the theatre, a Gilbert and Sullivan entertainment place. But we were the first to put on in Cork what we call slag shows. In other words, they were satire, and we had a brilliant uh, writer called Colum Feely who was superb. In fact, he was too good. Yeah. And some of his stuff was brilliant but obscure. And Michael Toomey, Chan Meyer, and myself used to water down his stuff and used to be furious every night, like, when we came off, you see. 
chases we ran for months after months after months and they were superb but there was a little sketch about two fellas in a pub doing the old Chan Moyer stuff you see and there was a little dog yeah. but he wasn't on the stage at all and you'd be amazed Sitting out standing up and we come on over here no boy. That's a good sit down there no boy. You know, and I mean it was absolutely we fooled them every night. And we used to do a jazz band then and none of us could play an instrument. Well you see, Charlie and I were in school together. As a matter of fact, God rest his soul, I, I was Charlie's friend for well nigh 70 years. I mean, that's a long time, you know. But we went through primary school and we went through secondary school in Prez together. And as soon as we were finished secondary school, we both joined the Presentation Theatre Guild, which was being run by Derbreen, uh, that we mentioned a while ago, the, the future director of the, of the Cork Film Festival, and Dan Donovan. Mm-hmm. And Dan, of course, is one of the best-known actors and directors in Cork to this day. And he is the one, I think, to whom I would owe the most with regard to my knowledge of stage technique and, and acting and directing, particularly directing, I would say, because I've worked with Dan for a long, long time. Jim Stack in the old days, and I forgot to mention Jim Stack because Jim was uh, one of the central figures in Cork who was uh, doing plays in the opera house uh, for donkey's years. Uh, he came up to the old little theatre society and he was also in charge of drama in the Cox School of Music and he was a, a great guy as well for getting plays on. No doubt about it, but going back to his time, James Stack would have been the outstanding, not just here in Cork, but I believe that in his time, I'm talking of the 50s, the 60s, James Stack would have been the outstanding director in Ireland. I, I don't know of, at that time, of directors of his stature uh, outside of Cork. This is uh, initialed here by Jim. That's Jim, Jim Stack. Stack yeah. He would always write a little... His note with your pay packet <laughs> at the end of the three weeks or whatever, two weeks or whatever it was, you know. Um, okay, can you read this one out for me? Yeah. Your best to date, Greta. A really first-rate performance. Your Sally was terrific. Sincere congratulations and a thousand thanks, Jim. And of course, that was like to die for. (laughs) That was worth more than the paycheck. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, the fact that you would get praise from him. Uh, He was slow in praising you, but he... um, Sometimes he would praise you to other people, but he wouldn't praise you to yourself, you know? Yeah. I remember one time someone said to me uh, that... uh, I had won, just won some, maybe the City Cup or something like that, or the Father Matthew Cup. And um, he said uh, to somebody else, you know, he said, Greta looked gorgeous. And he said, I have great ambitions for Greta. But he, but he never said that to me. <laughs> you had a lot of amateur, very good actors. I mean, very, very good. They were worthy of professional acting, you know. And they used to get paid the odd time, but um, mostly dedication. They were dedicated. Most of them came from the uh, Jim Stack School of Music uh, drama class. The early 1950s, we got going. 
In those days, you either went to the loft or to James Stack or to Dan Donovan. And I went down the road of James Stack. And it wasn't just a matter of uh, choice. It's really the way the cards fell. I went to James Stack because he taught in the Cork Souvenir Music and he gave private drama classes, voice and speech. And I went there and eventually... He put me into his student plays, Hamlet, Montserrat, Tree, and then graduated into his professional plays. So in that time, we're now talking mid-50s, a whole lot of us were semi-pros. We would do the day job, as Terry Wogan says. Then we would either go to the Opera House, or the Father Matthew Hall, or the AOH Hall, or the Father Valeria Hall, or St. Francis Hall, or Munster somewhere, and do a show. And that would be it, then back to work next day. Meanwhile, we'd probably be rehearsing another show. And there were a whole crowd of us used to do that, maybe up to 20 or 30 of us. Yeah, because the whole the word slag is a Cork word. And and you had your slag shows. Did you ever I I was just coming to them because oh I did, yes. My mm-hmm. goodness, I learned so much from those. Because that w- that was the next uh, experience I had with Charlie Hennessy after Presentation Theatre Guild. It, Charlie went off to Dublin in the 50s. I had started work in the 50s. We didn't see much of each other then because Charlie was pursuing uh, his uh, his uh, legal uh, studies and that, and I was in the insurance business. And then in the 60s, Charlie had come back, and one day I got a call from one Donal O'Donovan, who was a very good friend of mine in theatre and a very good actor himself, lovely character actor, to tell me he was going to put on a series of satirical reviews written by uh, a colleague of his in the county hall, they're working out mm. in the county council, Colm Feely. Yeah. And Charlie was involved, I recommended Charlie, as because I knew Charlie was a very good comedy uh, player and so on, and I recommended Charlie, and the two of us were involved with Don Lord Donovan, uh, Colm Feely, and one or two others, Charlie Ganan was another one, uh, and we put on these shows in the old group theatre, alas now gone, it was a 120-seater theatre uh, called the Group Theatre. It was founded by the late James N. Healy for the Gilbert and Sullivan Group, but there was a lovely little theatre, 120-seater, in the building, and that's where we put on the slag shows. Michael told me doing a piece on old IRA men, and what Colm Feely, the author, was mainly hitting at here was the numerous people who allegedly took part in the battle for the establishment of the Republic. Old IRA men, many of whom (laughs) never fired a shot, and lots of them were claiming pensions. So that's what this is all about. The fellows who had all the talk, but who really had had seen no action of quality. Here I go, That trouble's away. Yeah! There's no one suffer more than I did for the country. Here, a boy, there's no one's business what I went through. I remember one night I was walking down the North Main sucking a crow bean and minding my business. <laughs> it was after curfew at the time, and it was pitch dark on account of all the lights was out. <laughs> well, the next thing over the North Cape Bridge comes a crossly tender with the old searchlight on, and I was spotted. 
They drove up alongside of me, and a ten officer get down off the lorry and stick his gun into me, kiss him, and says, Here, what are you doing there? Well, needless to mention, I was carrying a right. I was carrying two Tommy guns down the legs of me trousers, 15 Mills bombs around me waist, five parabellums in me pocket, and about 600 rounds of ammunition up me uh, Gansey. <laughs> oh, I was carrying all right, so I couldn't be too saucy like. <laughs> so I looks up for him and says, I polite like, mind your own shagging business. <laughs> And they were an incredible success because Colm Feely was a brilliant writer of satire, political satire, every other kind. There wasn't a sacred cow that had wasn't touched by Colm Feely at one time or another, and uh, and audience absolutely loved it. In fact, it did so well that. Uh, on several occasions, we had to run midnight matinees to cope with with the with the. Um, so the, the crowds, crowds, the crowds yeah. came, and came. both Charlie and I were involved in those, and we enjoyed them immensely because they were our cups of tea. But Donald established a, a great format for that style of show, where we're doing sketches or where we're doing individual pieces, comedy pieces. You had to get from one to the other. You had to maybe change a costume, dash up to a dress room change. So you had to have something in between. And so he used um, sophisticated musical items, if you know what I mean. For example, we had Siobhan O'Brien, who was a lovely actress and singer of the time, doing Edith Piaf numbers, for example, okay. uh, while we were changing from one thing. And this idea of using tabs, of using curtains, so that at the end of a sketch you close the curtain, a singer came out in front of the curtains, did her number, while we were getting ready for the next sketch in the dressing room, as soon as she was finished, we were on stage, curtains opened off, we went in. So it was a non-stop show, tremendous pace. In order to help us to change costumes and whatever scenery we had, we used uh, the device of pre-recorded announcements and advertisements which came over the speakers in the auditorium. And that's what you hear, a sort of slightly muffled sound. You have it, love. You have? Why not send it to Christine and Mandy, cabinet breakers. (laughs) There is no truth in the rumor that Penny Fenshaw, who was arrested on Remembrance Day for selling puppies, has gone on hunger strike. This is a privilege reserved for Easter lily sellers. I asked Siobhan O'Brien if she would sing a couple of Edith P.F. numbers for us in one of our shows, which she did, and I thought did them very nicely.
About your acting skills, I mean, were, were were they there? They were they were always there, particularly, funnily enough, in a kind of a comic way, because I suppose it was a way that I just did. You know, I used to put on voices and everything sometimes in class. So I was a very good student, but I, you know, I'd sort of put on little voices and we'd have a giggle and that kind of thing. And um, there would be a bit of comedy in a little Mozart operetta that we did up in the women's jail. When I was in St. Angela's under Jerry Neeson, <clears throat> there were three of us in it, and we recorded that, like, for the national thing, you know? That was the radio station. That was radio station, it was. And what programme? Uh, did it go I, out nationally? It went out nationally, it did, yes. And um, that was a great experience. That was my first kind of experience of the big time, if you like, <laughs> kind of, <clears throat> we were going up there. Now, we kind of treated it quite lightly, in a, in a, in a way, because she was great. She was very... She appeared stern, but she had a great heart. But she'd always kind of, you, you knew where you were with her, you know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so the, the sort of the continental thing, I suppose, came from there. And that would also uh, lay the foundation for the kind of the later on, the TV, radio and cabaret type of thing. Colm wrote one sketch about two fellas sitting in a pub. I forget the title of it, but it was... The two characters were Cha. Cha was Charlie Hennessy and Maya was Michael Toomey. But they were Colm's words. <clears throat> and it was from that that Michael subsequently developed the Cha and Maya that most people know about. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, Charlie Hennessy was unable to do much work like this because of his profession. They didn't take too kindly to... Uh, Solicitors being on the stage it sort of trivialised them and took lower the tone of the thing. So he didn't do it. And Frank Dogan was the, the chair. It happened in 1969. And how it happened was, was very simple. Uh, at that time, Bill O'Hurley, Bill O'Hurley of the sports department in, in RTE, was uh, doing uh, an OB, an outside broadcast uh, uh, piece, for Frank Hall's programme at the time called Newsbeat, which was a magazine style of programme. And Bill O'Hurley was was stopping people in the street doing a vox pop on the South Mall on the dangers of smoking, because at that time people were just beginning to realise that maybe smoking (laughs) wasn't the best thing for your health. And he was doing a vox pop, stopping people passing in the mall and asking them, how many cigarettes do you smoke? Do you find it affects you? And all this sort of thing. And as it so happens, Frank Duggan, my colleague, was passing. And Frank and Bill were two great friends. As a matter of fact, they were the best men at each other's weddings, for example. But they knew. And, of course, Frank said, what are you doing, Bill? And Bill told him. And, you see, Frank said, you know, you, we could get a great fun out of this if you got some fellow, you know, to take the mickey out of it. I said, Billy, I would try it. Well, who would you suggest? And they were right opposite my office. And Frank and I had worked together while he had been involved as an accompanist and that in the slag shows and so on. And he said, we'll go over, we'll ask Mick to me. So they came over to, to my office, put the idea to me. And I said, yeah, let, let's put down a few, few words on a script. I went upstairs to the porter's uh, mm-hmm. apartment. I borrowed an old cap 
and a coat from the porter. <laughs> went across the South Mall, outside the Munster Bank, as it was then, and with a little butt on the end of a pin, I approached <laughs> Bill O'Hurley. <laughs> and we had a discussion which went something like, um, do you smoke many cigarettes? Oh, no, 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 only about, only about, about eight, about eight, I'd say. And uh, and then he says, and do you think it has had any effect on your health? Oh, not, not at all. No, no effect whatsoever. And the the interview went on on those. But the funny thing is, it wasn't the interview. It wasn't the actual script that uh, caught the imagination of the viewing public. It was the Cork accent. All of a sudden, I think people realised that there was this extraordinary accent down south called the Cork accent. And it was that that caught on. And uh, Frank Hall uh, got in touch with us through Frank, through Frank Duggan, my pal, to know could we come up with some similar pieces to put into his programme as a little comedy touch. And since I couldn't be talking to myself, we invented another character. And Frank beca- I became Maya and Frank became Cha. There's something about the Cork accent that is... Um for us, I suppose, it was a bonus in as much as the Cork accent is the butt of humour all over the country. You have a Mayo accent, you have a Carlo accent, you have a Wexford accent, but for some reason they're not considered as funny as the Cork accent. It's the up and down. You know, It has been a bonus for us. Now, strangely enough, I first became involved in the entertainment business, not on the comedy side of it, but uh, through playing the piano. Because... Uh, I took piano lessons from the time, the age of about 10 or 11, I'd say, up to about the age of 18. And I was also the organist in our local church at one time. And about sometime maybe in the early 50s, I was asked to play the piano for some crowd who were doing an, an entertainment in some old folks' home. And I did it and got away with it, just to um, accompany a few singers, not as a yeah. solo artist. And I did a few more of them. They started to do a tour of various concerts, of various um, hospitals and old folks' homes. And eventually I got into the business of being an accompanist at Sunday night concerts. Yes, indeed. And that's how I started, in the business. And I'll tell you an interesting story now. Mm. I was playing the piano for um, a very well-known Cork baritone, Chris Sheehan. Now, it was the very first time, really, I played the piano in public on a professional basis. I probably got a half a guinea or something like that. I have no idea. But it was in the CYMS Hall in Castle Street. And um, the piano was down in front. The, st- the stage was raised above the level of the hall. And the piano was down in front. So I was sitting facing the stage with my back to the audience. And I went round at the interval in, in backstage and asked Chris what he was going to sing. And he said... Um, called when the sergeant majors on parade and he gave me the score oh I said Chris I won't take the score at all I don't read music I play my own version oh Chris was very nervous before me. he said take it take it take it mm. so just to keep him happy I took the score I came down front down to the piano again and sat with my back to the audience and without looking at what I was doing I put the score up on the piano and played my own version and halfway through the song there was an old lady very elderly lady came over to me shuffling as she went and she said little boy you have the music upside down well that's the final clip in the collection of voices that you've been listening to of the golden age of core comedy and memories of the old opera house and if you liked listening to what you've just heard you can access the full interviews and browse through the whole collection 
by visiting our website at irishlifeandlore.com. And if you would like to become a patron and subscribe to Irish Life and Lore, you can do that by going to our donations page, because we depend on your generosity to keep our organization going. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.